When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth, where we're exploring all sorts of business topics. Experts from around the world join me, your host, Diane Helbig, for a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you. Take what you need, when you need it. Featured on Inc.com, Forbes, and MSNBC's Your Business, this podcast is recognized as one of the best podcasts for small business sales, leadership, social media, and more. When it comes to business, Accelerate Your Business Growth has got it covered. And now on with the show. My guest today is Jeff Gibbard. Jeff is the author of The Lovable Leader, a strategist, a professional speaker, and the founder of several companies, including Super Productive, and the Superhero Institute. Jeff helps people to unlock their potential to grow revenues while making a positive impact on the world. Jeff is also the host of his own popular podcast called Shareable. Thanks so much for being here today, Jeff. Thank you for having me, Diane. It's wonderful to talk to you. I am thrilled to have you here um, because uh, leadership is one of my favorite topics and seems to be something that so many people struggle with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I am curious in, in your work and in your travels, what are you seeing as some of the things that high-performing teams do differently? So I think the first thing we have to define in that is what do we mean by performance? So if we mean mm-hmm. like revenue performance or like profitability, shareholder return, you know, I think kind of all bets are off for the sort of things that I would typically talk about. But if what we're talking about for performance is Uh, retaining your best people, loyalty, people putting in that little bit of extra something because they believe in what you're working on, Um, you know, creativity, innovation, those sorts of things are really fostered by having the right type of environment where people feel free to contribute their unique gifts to the benefit of the team. Um, So it's a lot to do with safety. It's a lot to do with care. It's a lot to do with creating an environment of trust. All of those are the elements of really high performing teams. And, when we talk about teams, like there's so many different examples we could pull from. There's like sports teams. There's like, you know, the NASA team that helped, uh, you know, get back was it Apollo 13 or whatever. So, um, teams is, is in each context though, what we generally see is there's this real spirit of collaboration. There's a, a lot of alignment around big goals and there's just different ways in which they work with one another. And again, I think the underlying component there is the presence of care, trust, and safety. Okay. I love that care, trust, and safety. Uh, wow. It really resonates with me. Sweet. You're my kind of leader then. I feel like we <laughs> would get along. <laughs> I hope so. But, but yeah. you know, so, so, so what is the, that feels like um, that would be relatively easy. So what gets in the way of that? Yeah. One would think that's easy, right? Cause like you take yeah. each of those things individually and they sound simple enough. And isn't that sort of the paradox of really everything that the the most 
complicated things in life are often resolved with seemingly simple solutions, but behind <laughs> it, 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 it's like, what is that expression that, um, it's simple, but it's not easy. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. the, the idea of care, for instance, seems so profoundly easy, but what do you do when someone misses your expectations? What happens when you have external constraints that are putting pressure on your ability to truly care about that person's benefit? Like your butt's on the line because of something mm -hmm. care all of a sudden is not this thing that happens in a vacuum, but it's, it's this way of interacting and way of being with others that is subject to so many other different things influencing it and being connected to it. Same thing with trust, same thing with safety. The idea of safety, you know, even if you just take it in, in the most literal of senses, like, you know, OSHA violation sort of stuff, like it seems like you would have a checklist of like, how do we make this environment safe? But at what level do you make the distinction between uh, do we replace this this bolt or this whatever? Or do we get new hard hats or whatever it might be? A lot of that is subject to, well, how many other things have my attention and what other things do I have to pay attention to? So yeah, you're right. It, it does seem simple um, in in kind of isolation. But when we consider that every aspect of if we just take work is a complex cocktail of all of these other factors that are causing us to maybe not have the focus on those things. So I guess this, the, the quick answer to your question would be that we have to actually elevate those three elements to the forefront. We actually have to make them not components of something else, but rather other things being component of that. So what happens when profitability serves care rather than care serving profitability, for instance? Oh, that's interesting. So, so it's where you put your focus and then there are, uh, consequences from that. Yeah. It's like, a spillover effect. Yeah, exactly. It's like, mm. you know, what, what, what do we give priority and precedence over other things? What, if we have to sacrifice something, what is first sacrificed upon the altar of business? What is it? And if we give, you know, uh, care a primary place in the order of operations that changes everything. Um, and you can see, like, when you just look at companies out there and you think about what what they put at the forefront of their brand, it changes how we as customers relate to them. But as people inside the walls, it changes how they relate to their own company. What's important here is defined by what's placed at the top of that pyramid of priorities. My belief is that the best performing teams start by putting people first and people meaning kind of any stakeholder, but those stakeholders as humans first. So we think about environment, we think about mental health, we think about physical health, those sorts of things. When you put those things first, it kind of changes the way you approach everything. So what do you say to someone um, at, at the time that we're recording this, there was just a news story that um, Exxon's profits were just insane. Like they hit a new record, so many billions of dollars. While I think it was like during the pandemic. So, you know, while, while people weren't working, what do you say to someone who's a leader in an organization where they don't necessarily see the negative aspect of not putting those things first? safety, trust, those things. Yeah. It's, um, I'm, it's funny because I'm always reminded of 
that um, it's either a joke or an anecdote or whatever about the, the two fish swimming and the ones talking about the water and it's like, what's water? Um, <laughs> it's that whole thing, right? Like, so, so business, presumably if, you know, you're a U.S. listener to this um, or we're just talking in the context of U.S. businesses, we have the kind of philosophy of, um, you know, shareholder primacy. And that leads to a certain water that we're all swimming in. And it becomes very difficult to say, well, just breathe air instead. So I think it's difficult to fundamentally shift everything you do within the culture that we're, that we're in because we are fundamentally swimming in it. So I think, you know, when I talk about these things and when, um, when I sort of beat the drum for people first, I recognize that I'm doing it in an environment in which that naturally is put second. Um, so how do I make the case for it? I, I think first and foremost is that I'm of the belief, and I could be wrong by this, but I believe all businesses are run by people. I believe they're led by people. I believe they're labored by people. And all people, as far as I'm aware of, are humans. And all humans are floating on planet Earth through an endless galaxy. And at some point, that occurs to some portion of the people that I reach with this message or the people that, that resonate and vibe with what I'm talking about here, there's a recognition that all of this stuff we do is made up and we can choose what those priorities are. And it's not going to happen overnight, but I do think even in your small pockets of your small team inside of a company, if you can change the priorities and you can have a team that works well together, that innovates, that is more creative, that has lower turnover, all of the things that you would want in a high-performing team. And that also that team also is able to generate, you know, more money than it than it costs. Um, then you have at least an opportunity to start to shift the tides towards being a more human-first way of looking at leadership and teamwork. Um, but at a certain point, we are going to kind of come crashing into the the differing priorities where if we have to put people or profits first at a certain point, culturally, we have to decide that one's going to come before the other. I'm beating the drum for we put people first. It's not going to resonate with everyone. I know that the CEO of Exxon doesn't care what I think here, but I'm hoping <laughs> that someone that works at Exxon lower right. level right. that maybe wants to start a groundswell within the company about what's our priority. What are we doing? What are we doing to the earth? What are we doing in, what are we doing for our customers? How do we maybe position ourselves to shift what our business is about so that it can be more sustainable for the entire species? Maybe there's someone there that's beating that drum and maybe they'll, they'll actually make inroads and maybe they won't. Maybe Exxon will go down in history as, you know, having created all these catastrophes uh, from their knowledge from the seventies, or maybe they'll turn things around. I don't know. But I think in general, you still have to fight the good fight and try and put people first and, try to continually do the right thing for the greatest number of people. I so agree with you. I, I, absolutely. And, and I feel like um, it, it's potentially easier in smaller companies, even though if you look at a team, you know, each department can be a team. So, so you can break down a large company, but if we're looking at small businesses, um, this feels like it would be potentially easier because really the way that they achieve greater 
sustainability, profit, whatever it is, is by focusing on the people. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the smaller it's, uh, it's that whole cruise ship analogy, right? It's a lot easier to maneuver a speedboat than it is right. you know, a, a cruise liner or an oil tanker. Yeah. Right. And I think the issue with a lot of these enormous businesses, whether it be by headcount or revenue is that there's certain expectations on them and there's a certain, uh, set of tailwinds behind them, pushing them in a certain direction. Whereas when you're smaller, more nimble, you can make those changes. You know, I, I operate in one line of my business as a solopreneur and I operate in other lines of my business as small teams. So we have a lot more say and control over what it means to work together and how we're going to prioritize certain things. Right. And all of those sort of, um, considerations are a lot easier when there's, you know, less voices and, and less, um, less people you have to answer to with other differing priorities. So, you know, is that a call to kind of like atomize the world of business? I don't know, but I think you raise a good point that if you can start to, um, see your different teams, whether they big, be big or small, and you can start to see them in smaller units, even down to even say the individual and what the concern is for that individual. I think you start to be, you start to move in the right direction of what I think is required to create teams that are cohesive and caring and trusting and, and create safety. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I do a, a program for um, new leaders in companies and I the first thing I do is have them go through an exercise of what are the company goals, what are the department goals, and what are the individual people's goals? Mm -hmm. Because for me, that's an ecosystem that all those goals have to be being met in order for the organization to thrive. 100%. And a lot of times, yeah. And a lot of times we don't look at the individual and I go to, cause you know, people will say, well, they want a safe work environment. They want to make money, blah, blah, blah. And I push it into their, personal life, because that's what they're bringing with them. Like, you know, they want to send their kids to college. They want to go on a vacation. They want to buy a house, buy a car, you know, who knows, right? Maybe they want to get divorced. Who knows what it is? But th those, all those needs play in every single time someone shows up for work. A hundred percent. And so in my book, The Lovable Leader, there's a, a framework that I have in there that I absolutely love. I, I came up with, it's called sitting on the same side of the table and it's a conversation framework. Uh -huh. And the first step in that framework is set the table and setting the table means establishing the goals for the conversation, what you're trying to do and being clear about what both sides are trying to achieve. So like set the table, what are we both here for? What do you want? What do I want? No. And and then you move into like listening and curiosity, right? So what yeah. the, the idea is, and then later on in the framework, you want to align goals, right? So you want to send your kids to college. We want you to do X, Y, and Z. How do we make those two goals overlap? Then that what we want from you is helping you get what you want. And I think anytime you're in any situation where you can make maybe two competing ideologies point in the same direction, you have an opportunity to make sure that everybody walks away happier. And I think one of the big problems that we see in business, we see it in uh, the competitive business environment. We see it in, in so many different areas. We see it in our relationships, friends or romantically, is that there's a competition of sort of a, a zero sum game, a winner and a loser. And I think more often than not, we have to look for collaborative solutions where everybody can get something that they want because that moves everyone forward rather than having someone always inevitably have to lose. And I think that's something we see a lot of in business is like there's a boss, right? And the boss wants yeah. this. So you have to do what the boss says. Well, that's silly. 
why not instead have, you know, here's what our priorities are. Let's talk about what yours are. Okay, let's see where we can make these two things happen together. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, negotiation is about both parties feeling like they won, right? Not that one bested the other. It's just, yeah. Yeah. There's, um, um, are you familiar with, uh, Donald Miller, uh, building a story brand and, uh, all his stuff? Uh Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he has a, uh, he has a uh, thing called business made simple university. And it's like this online course. And I was, uh, he has a, a section, I think it's in the book business made simple. It's also in the, in the course about negotiation. He talks about the two different types of negotiations and there's one where it's like a competitive negotiation. The other one's like a collaborative negotiation. So it's funny because when you go in and I, I have this happen all the time, cause I go into almost every negotiation collaboratively, but if you're in a competitive environment negotiation and you come in collaboratively, you're probably going to lose that negotiation as opposed to if you both come in collaboratively. So it's like, it's very uh-huh. important to understand when you go into any negotiation to understand like what kind of a negotiation you're in. Are we competing here? Do we have to figure out a way to let, do I have to figure out a way to make you feel like you want a little something like that, that you got one over on me so that you feel good or, or do we have to, uh-huh. or are we having a conversation about how everybody gets what they want? And I think that's a really important thing that, um, while I understand it in principle, like it's a simple concept, I still think I struggle with it because I'm such a collaboratively minded person. Right. It's hard to put yourself in those shoes. Yeah. Also, I know I have like a really toxic competitive side that's like deeply inside <laughs> of me. And like, I don't like to let that out. So I'd rather just like, let's yeah. just try and all work together. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I wonder if um, people who lean toward collaborative have that toxic side naturally because they so don't like having to be in that position. Yeah. Although there, I believe there are probably some people who lean into that toxic competitiveness True. and that's why they're on the other side always. And they can't do collaboratives. Like they feel yeah. like they have, like I think of Michael Jordan and it's like that I've seen so many things about Michael Jordan and like, whether you're a sports fan or not, like, I just think he's like iconic for his like ruthless competitiveness. Like the, the, the dude would like have a, a competition with you about like who could drink the water bottle faster. It's like literally everything was a competition <laughs> to this guy. And for, I would say for me, the reason why I took the toxic competitiveness and I was like, Ooh, that's something I don't want. And I kind of stuff it deep down inside and try not to let it out is because I, I suffered some of the consequences of toxic competitiveness. And I saw how yeah. it was not healthy and it was not good. And it didn't, it didn't allow me to be the person that I wanted to be otherwise. So I was like, oh, that's, that doesn't work for me. But some people, um, you know, I've met a lot of like lawyers who are litigators and they come in a lot of different flavors, but there's some who are just horrible to be around because for them, everything is a game of winning and losing. Yeah. And it's like, dude, I just want to go out for a drink with you. Like, why is yeah. that to be this way? <laughs> Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, 
toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough. I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) Okay, I want to switch gears slightly and have you talk about um, the differences and the similarities between leadership and management. Yes, yes. Love talking about this because they're like overlapping Venn diagrams um, with like this nifty little part in the middle. But I see them as kind of um, I'll first say I think it is a lot easier to teach a great manager to be a great leader than it is to teach a great leader to be a great manager. Really? Um, I do believe that. And I don't have any data to back this. And it okay. could be completely anecdotal. So I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. But it's partly because I, I, when I look at the skill sets that are required, I see one is fundamentally more teachable. Um, and, and that's, and, and again, that could just be my own bias to it. But so I see um, management. Let's start there. Management is about the, uh, the ability to understand what needs to happen in a certain sequence to deploy resources, to organize people, to organize processes, and to to generally make sure everything is happening in the way that a plan has been structured. Like a, a manager manages things, manages things, manages people, manages resources. It is an attention to detail um, uh, discipline. And I think great managers do that really well. And I think especially great managers do it with an element of what's present in great leadership. And it's, and that's how you interact with the people, right? So how you manage people is as important as what you're doing to manage people. Um, so it's, it's the, it's the Hmm. method of how you interact with them personally. Leadership on the other hand, I think requires less about, um, taking what is and putting it into an order and, and seeing it through. I think it's more about seeing what doesn't exist and trying to paint a vivid picture for people about where it is that we're going. And then I think really great leaders have the ability to really engage the people that they are leading. I, I think this is kind of a critical skill as, as a base level, like you have to understand what the people on your team want. But I think at the highest level, you have to be able to, as we kind of were talking about before, understand what people, where people really want to go and gather up the kind of the through line of all the people in the group and figure out how to tie it to where you're pointing to as a direction, right? So it's, it's about understanding how to align together different visions of a future into one, get everybody on the same page. And it's also about understanding how to play a role. So I think a manager's role often is more about, um, coaching people to do a thing. It's not as much stepping in to do a thing. I think a leader is often someone who has to play every position at some point uh, and sometimes has to play the position of doing nothing and helping other people grow. Whereas managers don't necessarily want people to grow outside of the box that they're in because they have a role to play. A leader wants to create more leaders. So they want you to grow out of that box. So there's a, a the fundamental kind of conflict, I think, hmm. between what a leader is trying to accomplish and what a manager is trying to accomplish. And oftentimes what a leader is trying to accomplish is undermined to a certain extent by what a leader is trying to accomplish in growing people. You actually need people to play the role that they are going to play to see the plan through rather than growing out of that role, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, 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 yeah, it does. That that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but but that does make a, a ton of sense to me. So, can anyone be a leader? Then, do you think, or are there some people who can't grab onto those skills? Um. I think there are a lot of people who will have difficulty with it for one reason or another, but I fundamentally believe everyone is a leader and it's just context dependent. Um, so, you know, it's it, similar to like the idea of privilege. It's, it's not a single thing. It's a thing that's defined by the context that you're in. So a leader, uh, for instance, just a, a, like a really simple, basic example. Um, I might not be a leader in my daughter's preschool uh, classroom because like I'm her dad, I'm not like a leader, but she might be a leader in that room because she's a cohort of the kids in her preschool class. You know what I mean? Like context dependent. She has a different uh, relationship with the people in that room than I do. Or maybe uh-huh. in the context of taking all of those kids to the park, I would be a leader because I understand the, 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 the constraints and boundaries of safety to get them there. So that is like a silly little example, but, but context matters. Uh-huh. So if you have a unique skill or ability in the context of a situation that requires that ability or skill, you are the de facto leader of that cohort of people. Um, so I think on the one hand, context matters. On, this, on the other hand, which I think is more fundamental to the question, is that I believe leadership is a mindset more than anything. It's mm. not necessarily – it's definitely not a title, although it often comes with a title – I think it's more of a mindset and a way of being and a way of approaching relationships, situations, plans, et cetera. So I think that, and that's partly why I said, I think it's easier to teach a manager to be a great leader because it's Mm -hmm. about shifting the mindset of what you expect from people, what you expect of yourself, how you're going to interact with people, um, your commitment to other people's growth, the commitment to your own growth. I think manager has to somewhat preserve a status quo. They have to preserve something that is, whereas a leader is constantly moving forward and out of what is. Um, And that's why I think a a really great manager is the one who can delicately balance the two and know when it's time to move beyond what we currently have into something new. Okay. So um, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking about situations that I have been in throughout my career and life. And, and so this is a really weird question, but someone who micromanages, could they be a good manager? I mean, could that be an element of a good manager, but not a good leader? That's a great question. And the reason why I think it's a great question is again, because of context. So as an example, um, I kind of love micromanagers and I, and I don't mean that objectively like micromanager good. I mean, because I have ADHD and I'm on the autism spectrum, when I have a safe relationship with someone like my business partner, Sarah, um, or my wife, Erica, um, I invite their micromanagement. I invite it. It is consensual nagging because I have like a 60 second working memory. So it's not, micromanaging me. It is supporting me through a deficit that I have. So I think, again, in the context of if you micromanage everyone, no, not good. If you micromanage the people that require that kind of support from you, you're being one, a great manager and a great leader because you're giving the people what they need to be able to grow and succeed and thrive. 
micromanagement as a discipline of like, this is my way, probably not useful because there are some who don't need your micromanagement. It may turn them off. It may frustrate them. It may anger them. If you have someone on your team like me who, again, if I don't invite the micromanagement, it's going to drive me nuts. Go away. Leave me alone. But if I have a relationship with you where I trust you and I invite you to support me in that way, and because I think micromanagers tend to micromanage because they have a hard time not knowing what's going on and they have a hard time with the idea that it might fail or believe that it might fail if they don't stay on top of someone. Maybe they've yeah. been burned in the past or maybe they just have a need to achieve in their own way. So yeah. they do that. And I think if you apply that you know, indiscriminately across the board, again, not healthy, but if you understand when you can deploy that, then that micromanager, when they're working with someone like me, they get everything that they need, the satisfaction and the comfort of being able to check in and find out what's going on and this and that. And I get the reminder that I so sorely need because I completely forgot I was supposed to do something. This is, that, that is fabulous. I, I, I love that because one of the things that really sticks out for me about that is that it's consensual, that you are yes. asking for it, right? That, yes. that, because people... I mean, I don't know how what I'm what I think I'm hearing, and I know this is something I believe completely is that we need to be dealing with people based on who they are, not as a collective necessarily, because everyone has different ways of needing certain things. One hundred percent. And I love that you brought up another one of my favorite C words, which is consent. So back to. Uh, sitting on the same side of the table. The other part of setting the table this is a very important part before you even move forward to the rest of a conversation is you have to have consent to continue the conversation. Forcing a conversation on someone, even if it's a disciplinary conversation, if they're not ready to receive it, you're just wasting your breath. There's just yeah. no point. So you want to always have consent in any aspect of leadership. It's important that you Get consent to give feedback, that you give consent to have a difficult conversation, that you get consent to give praise. Some people are really uncomfortable with praise. <laughs> I'm, I'm super uncomfortable with it. I like acknowledgement, but praise begins to make me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So I think when you have the conversation, you say, hey, listen, I really want to just express to you how appreciative I am of your contributions here. And I, I want your permission to actually just heap some praise on you. Some people are uncomfortable with that. I want to make sure that that's okay with you because it would mean a lot to me if I could tell you what your contributions meant. For someone like me who doesn't like praise, I'd be like, I'm doing this for you now. Okay, give it to me, right? Uh, See what I'm saying? So, so uh -huh. that consent piece is so important. And then um, the, the kind of the closing the loop of that, the last, uh, the last step in the sitting on the same side of the table framework is called closing the loop. And this is after you get through the conversation, you want to wrap up and kind of uh, summarize what the conversation was about. Hey, you know, Diane, we had this conversation about micromanagement and we talked about X, Y, and Z. And I mentioned that I'm going to do this coming of it. And you're going to do that. Does that sound like everything that we had covered? And you say, yeah. And I go, okay. So is, if it's okay with you, you had said that you want me to check in with you and, and give you feedback on a weekly basis. Is that okay with you? Yes. We now have a completely consensual conversation that we've had. And neither of us has to feel like our boundaries are being invaded, that we're unsafe to express our needs, that we're unsafe. And, and this is also part of it. It has to be safe in that consensual conversation to say no, say, no, I'm actually not right. comfortable with that. I said it, right? So it also can't be forced consent. It can't be assumed mm -hmm. consent. It has to be legitimate. Now is not a good time. I'm having a rough day. I can't take your critical feedback. 
And it's tough because, again, we talked about at the very beginning of, of our conversation together, there's all of these factors that are competing yeah. for attention. It's like, okay, you've got the boss breathing down your neck that you have to have a conversation with this person back to my and Z. And they're like, hey, today's not a good day. What do you do there? Like sometimes yeah. just a judgment call. And again, if you put care and you put trust as, as your primary thing, you're going to go back to your boss and say, hey, listen, I'm going to talk to this person tomorrow because today yeah. is not a good day. And I understand it. And like, sometimes you're not going to have that option, but when you do and you put care and trust and safety at the, at the forefront, you're going to make decisions that then allow you to have more impactful conversations with people who consent to that conversation, who will receive it better, which means they'll probably stick around. They'll probably work harder. They'll probably be more loyal. They'll probably give you more grace. You'll give them more grace. Everything works out better, but it's so tough because we have so many pressures telling us to do something different. Right. Right. Oh my God. I love this conversation. So, and, and I, I just have so many, one of the things that you were talking about when you were going through that whole, you know, permission thing, one of the things I noticed about it is that when, when you were talking about, you know, I'd like to heap some praise on you and, and, and you gave the, why it matters to you. That's the other thing I think people don't do enough. They don't explain why they want to do something mm -hmm. or why they need something from someone else. They either assume people know or that it's not relevant or, or whatever it is. But like with the example that you gave and using yourself is, is that, you know, that then when you heard that you realized, okay, I'm doing this for you. Okay. I can do it. Like it just changes the whole dynamic. Yeah. And I think it's because we're profoundly guarded. We're profoundly guarded because it's yeah. not safe. Right. So yeah. like if the whole thing comes full circle huh. here, wow. if you feel safe mm -hmm. to share what your needs and accommodations are and what your preferences are and what makes you comfortable and what doesn't. And I mean, oh, my God, go even deeper and share the trauma that something is actually bringing up for you. Like how mm -hmm. safe do you have to be to say, like, look, the reason why this thing makes me uncomfortable is because I had a job when I was 25 and this thing happened and I've been shell shocked about it ever since. That's yeah. that opens up a whole new understanding that you have between two people that now allows for the way of working together to be adjusted and catered and customized so that everybody can live freely and work in their maximum zone of genius because they're not constrained and, um, and tormented by things that other people don't even know are a problem. It comes hmm. down to safety. Safety is like kind of that initial uh, you know, it's the, it's like the opening ante. Like if you don't have safety, yeah. you can't even have an open conversation about needs. And then you can't express to someone why you might need something that helps them understand, okay, this is for you. And I'm going to do this for you because you do things for me. It just changes the whole dynamic of the team. God, it really does. It really does. Oh my gosh, Jeff, th this is really so fabulous. I, I love all of this information and just, oh, I, I can't even like, just feel like That's I'm fabulous. so glad we're having this conversation. Yeah, oh. me too. I, I, you know, I, um, I put together this book because I was frustrated. I mean, yeah. if, if, if there's one thing that started the whole thing, it was probably frustration. I I've had such a hard time, uh, holding a job in my entire life. And that's, a lot because there was just not safety there. There was not trust yeah. there. There was not care there. When I look back on 
the original draft of this book, I basically looked at everything that bad bosses throughout my life did. And I said, what if we flipped the entire script on that? Mm. And then I looked deeper into it and I looked deeper and deeper and I tried to figure out what is at the core of this thing. And that's when I started to kind of bring out some of these concepts and begin to understand. I talked to people and say like, what, like, what did you love about that previous job? And what did you hate about this job? And as I talked to more and more people, it like really common things just kept cropping up. And again, when we started out, we said, you know, it sounds so simple. These are simple ideas. All of the ideas in the book are pretty simple. Validate people, don't judge them, and they won't get defensive and they'll be more open to a conversation. Ask for consent and you'll have a much better conversation that people are open to. Uh, you know, keep your conversations direct and concise and honest and thoughtful and respectful and people are more receptive. Like, duh, literally all duh, every bit of this, but we forget it and we forget yeah. it because we're not putting the right things at the top of the pyramid mm-hmm. and we're we're seeking to protect ourselves and we're seeking to make it safe for ourselves and protect our own back. And we're operating with a scarcity mindset. And I think when you shift to operating with a mindset of like love and abundance and care and trust and, and generosity, and that becomes like your, your dogma of leadership, it fundamentally, you almost can't even back to the swimming in the water. You almost can't even exist in, a system. The system almost cannot even support yeah. having that as your ideas. And the system has to begin to change to adapt to it. So the environments that I try to cultivate and the environments that the partnerships that I have and the ways that I work with people are so honest and so open. And so uh, placing the care of the individual as, as primary that we fundamentally make different decisions about how we even take on clients or how we work with people. Because the most important thing is going to be each of us in our own safety and our own ability to have trusted relationships. Yeah, boy, I'm so glad you wrote the book. And I am so glad that you are here with me today. Will you tell the listeners how they can find the book, how they can find you, you know, all the stuff they need to know, please? Yeah, sure. Um, So I, uh, I do a lot of different things aside from the book. And um, I used to list off like 40 different URLs and be like, oh, you can find this here and that. I realized that the simplest thing to do was just put everything in one place. So I have a website, jgibbard.com, J-G-I-B-B-A-R-D.com. And that is kind of the Jeff Gibbard main menu. It'll bring you to the book. It'll bring you to all my social, my content projects, how to work with me, hire me to speak, all the different things that, um, that I do and all the things that you could find that are me. They're there, and it's just a series of nested menus. It's like a link tree sort of thing, but not quite link tree. It, it's it's nicer than that. But mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? It's that. I do. <laughs> Wonderful. I love one place where you can get everything. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> it makes it so much. Saves easier. me a lot of breath too. I, don't have to I know, remember right? a lot of URLs. You know. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, as I said, thank you, and listeners, thank you. You are who we're doing this for. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Discover more episodes of this podcast and explore others at evergreenpodcast.com. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And if you're looking to get your sales strategy headed in the right direction, pick up a copy of Succeed Without Selling on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. 
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.